the Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. This week, a name that looms large in New Zealand history, Takuti, and his story this week. Um, and we'll go into a bit of detail about it. Of course, we'll bloody go into a bit of detail. <laughs> a famous man, a prophet, and in the end, he was pardoned in 1883 for all the stuff that he got up to. It's an amazing tale, and it uh, covers a, quite a geographic area of New Zealand as well. Jared, Oh, absolutely. De Corti. It's a household name, really. Certainly was in the colonial days. And uh, the name, of course, rings a bell to, to uh, everyone in New Zealand. There's no doubt about it. But he was the founder of the Ringatu religion, and he was a, basically a guerrilla fighter as well. Very, very effective. But he was an interesting character. He was a bit of everything. He was spiritual, but he was a wily bad boy as well, you know. And the military campaign against him became known as to Corti's war, and as you said, he was pardoned in 1883, but he continued to be active in spreading the Ringatu message of peaceful resistance and reclaiming the land from Pakia. His name um, was absolutely a household name in the fledgling colony of New Zealand. It's been a fascinating thing to, to actually research him. You're sort of trying to always grab some sort of character, but he was he was a very diverse person. He was born into the Nati Maru. Now this is a hapu of the Rongafatua Ata'ata tribe. And they, they overlook the Awapuni Lagoon and Poverty Bay. And according to the traditions, he was born in 1814. But that wasn't correct because when in 1866 he was banished to the Chatham Islands, he was no more than about 35. Now, I'm fascinated by his upbringing, Graham. I have to say, his father, Honi Tarangi Pa Tahi, he was a, uh, sounds like a pretty full-on character. There's one well-known story about Takoti. He was such a, a sort of wily child and so troublesome that his father, in desperation or uh, exasperation, I should say, ended up burying him in a kumara pit to die. It seems a remarkable story. What sort of father would do that, you have to ask? So it's a remarkable story about uh, De Corti's childhood and his relationship with his father, very troublesome relationship, where his father actually tried to kill him. And, of course, this week we have uh, the Margaret River events, the massacre where a grandfather kills his grandchildren and also his, his daughter and his wife. I mean, it's beyond belief. We, we've actually had those in New Zealand. The Schaefers, remember that? Yeah, exactly. And there's a remarkable story, um, even from my own family on Durville Island, that it was never known, of course, but 
uh, my grandfather in 1906 on on the beach of Waitai, which is the family farm on Duval Island. They were working. Uh, they got their yards almost right on the beach. They were tailing some um, young weathers and shearing them. And this canoe came over from Tanui Island, where the Ngāti Kawata people lived, but it was a man, they knew he'd only recently arrived, a Māori man, but he had in the canoe a couple of children, one of them was his own. They had a feeling he was a sort of angry man, he'd visited on a couple of occasions and the Māori would come over quite frequently to try to uh, borrow some sugar, that was the main thing they came over for, but they also borrowed tools. Anyway, the father, they heard him yell out to his child, stay in the canoe, because he was in, he was obviously in some sort of agitated hurry. Anyway, they gave him a crosscut saw and a chisel that he wanted, and then he wandered back to the canoe, and then they heard a terrible commotion. The boy had obviously got out of the canoe. It's, of course, it's exactly the same scenario as stay in the car, but the boy had gotten out of the canoe and was throwing stones at his friend in the canoe. Well, the father threw into this terrible rage and picked up a huge bit of hardwood driftwood and smacked his kid on the head, just busted his head open, and the brains were all over the beach. And it's the most remarkable story in our family because my grandfather and his brother, they just didn't know what to do. They kind of went up to the boy, and the father pushed them away. By now he was wailing, of course, at what he had done. He picked up the boy, put him back in the canoe, and paddled off. Good and God. I know, and my grandfather, they just couldn't believe it. Anyway, they talked about it for ages, and the farm workers too, and they said, you know, what are we going to do? Well, they thought they'd better write a statement of events and send it to the constable in Havelock, which they did that night. They sealed it with wax. They waited for the postman who was coming in his boat, George Webber, the following day. They give him the letter and describe the events, and he said, oh, I wouldn't bother. This is Maori business, he said. Anyway, he said, I'll take your letter, and they never heard a thing about it. Oh, my God. You know, this was the way, Graham, you know, I'm, I'm often fascinated by the sort of the black and whiteness of history. We, we, we sort of make it politically correct today, but these sort of things could happen with anyone. And these sort of events are very much like the incident with Takoti and the Kumara pit that he was buried alive. And from Takoti's own description, he found a way, the earth parted for him, and he found a way out of it. It was interesting that two months before Takoti's birth, a uh, tohunga named Tairoa, he told his parents, your unborn child is a son whose fame shall reach the corners of the earth for good and evil. When he is born, you will christen him Tiwatavati Po, which means dark of the night. Now, interestingly, Takoti when he was baptised a Christian, he took up this name Takoti, which is a transliteration of Coates. And by his own account, he took the name from official notices he had seen on a trading trip to Auckland. And it sounds like he took it from the Church Missionary Society in England, Danderson Coates. So interestingly, in later life, Takoti always used this name, but he also used the name Turuki from the father's younger brother or cousin. So he used several names, but uh, it's interesting that it's just a little 
transliteration, if you like. Yeah, and also that we had Gordon Coates in the end as a Prime Minister. Yeah, that's right. Does De Kulte say anything about why he was left for dead in the Coomera pit? Oh, well, just that he had a very troublesome relationship and his father apparently left him to die of starvation or suffocation. What an extraordinary thing. Anyway, in the event, though, his father forgave his son as if he needed forgiving and Takorti lived with the family until his father's death, interestingly. But anyway, when he reached a manhood, so to speak, in 1850, Te had acquired a certain amount of European education. There were two missionary schools in Poverty Bay, uh, and he became an avid reader of translations of the Testament, and he particularly became fascinated with the Psalms of David. As I said, he was a strange mixture of wildness and religious piety, and he grew into a very alert man, there's no doubt about it, endowed with sort of great uh, strength and uh, sort of a lean, hard frame, if you like. In later years, he demonstrated, a lot of people commented, his amazing um, powers of enduring hardship and fatigue. He could he could just outgo virtually anything that was thrown at him. He became an expert horseman. He, he was a great hunter. He was a sailor, which helped him in his trading and boat building that he engaged in near Gisborne. And he became a sort of amorous adventurer too and he angered many of the Poverty Bay leaders, both Maori and European. He was known to have quite a few wives but he certainly had a lot of girlfriends in his early days, there was no doubt about it. He was a popular sort of guy. Mm. And he looks tough as all hell too, doesn't he? Oh, definitely. Now, when the land wars of the 1860s broke out, Poverty Bay, that was sort of left in peace for about four years. But in 1865, the district felt this whirlwind of war come over it. It, it came in on the wings of how howism which was sort of started in Taranaki, but quickly spread up to Poverty Bay. Now, Howhaism began as a peaceful movement, but the defeat of the Maori changed its direction. It turned it into a, a sort of rallying point to unite tribes against the Pākehā. And a Howhau missionary named Kereopa Te Rua, of course, Rua, crusaded across the centre of the North Island in 1865 and uh, he eventually visited Poverty Bay and he incited an, uh, an uprising there and it culminated in the siege of Waringa Hikipa. Now, for eight days, the Hauhau rebels held off a mixed Maori European force before finally surrendering. Now, De Corti was an ammunition carrier for the government forces. You remember he'd been bought up by the missionaries, so it was quite unnatural that he joined, maybe. But his, but his brother, Kumare, he fought with the Howhows in the Pa. Now, De Corti became very unpopular with the chiefs fighting against the rebels. He was accused of communicating with the Howhows in their Pa, and it was alleged that he 
was giving that information to the British and apparently it was alleged also that, that he removed bullets from their paper cartridges and supplied ammunition to the enemy. And to the Maoris, this would have been no crime for, for to give a good account of oneself in battle was almost as important as winning. It's, a, it's an unusual situation, but he was accused by both sides of, of being a turncoat. So it was a very unfortunate position that he started in, but Te Korti was imprisoned in the nearby mission house until the siege was over, and then he was tried by the white officers, and his defence was that he was trying to persuade his brother to leave the uprising. But the evidence against him was entirely flimsy, and he was freed. Okay, we'll take a short break here. The fascinating story of some people have called him a guerrilla fighter, Takuti. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. Get a free program at dockedge.nz. Outsiders, this week, Takuti, Ariki Rangi Taturuki, Ngati Maru, who had a reputation of being pacifist e. Anyway, nonetheless, this name resonates in New Zealand history. And, uh, boy, did he get up to a thing or two. We're looking at the life of Te and this is in the um, 1850s, 1860s in New Zealand, Jared. Yeah, fascinating story, Te There's no doubt. Very involved in the uh, Poverty Bay land wars there, and the uh, mopping-up operations continued against the bands of rebels roaming the countryside, but... Four months after Takorti's trial, a messenger from the How House was intercepted. Now, he was found to be carrying 350 rounds of ammunition and a letter allegedly in Takorti's handwriting, which gave information about government troop movements. Now, the British immediately arrested Takorti and he was taken without trial to join the the other rebels imprisoned at the fall of the par. Now, they were all shipped to Napier on the SS St Kilda, and they were kept in the immigration barracks until transport to the Chathams became available. This was going to be his banishment right away from the scene. He was seen very early as a troublemaker. Now, Colonel Timothy Porter, now he was an early pioneer in Poverty Bay who was married to a high-born Maori woman, actually. He was in charge of the guard. Now, Takuti never wavered, totally protesting his innocence. He said he wasn't treacherous. He always claimed that it was his enemies amongst Maori and Pākehā alike who wished to see him exiled. So he's saying he was framed, basically. Yeah, totally framed. And they only had a sample of his handwriting. I mean, it could have possibly been written by anyone, but the British weren't taking any chances. Mm. Now, while he was under arrest... This was an interesting phase for Takorti because he became a lay reader to the prisoners and it was a forefronter of his activities in exile, really. The imprisonment of Takorti and all the How How rebels on the Chathams without trial, it always had been a sort of controversial subject. Now, in 1866, the Chathams was a 
prisoner of war camp for Maori dissidents under the control of a resident magistrate. Now, his name was Captain Thomas. So he was a retired English army officer who had immigrated to New Zealand. And when the Korti and the Poverty Bay rebels arrived, they brought the total number of prisoners there to 272. They were all guarded by 25 militiamen, about half of whom were Māori. Now, the stretch of the Pacific Ocean, of course, and the islands and the mainland was considered a sufficient obstacle to any escape plans whatsoever. No one could ever get back, or so the British thought. Now, the guards there were accommodated in a sort of redoubt where they could retreat into if attacked, which also housed the cookhouse, their cookhouse, and a big powder magazine. Now, the prisoners were kept in five large forays, which they had to build themselves using tree fern stems and sort of thatching the roots. And uh, life soon settled into a sort of routine of morning roll calls and work about the camp, and mostly around Waitangi Bay or for some early prisoners on the island. They could often be sent anywhere, of course, but food was issued three times a week, and the prisoners were allowed to fish in the bay three days of the week. They could use the government little whale boat. Because of sailing experience, Takuti became the helmsman of the whale boat, and they had a doctor there who attended the sick every morning at roll call. That was his job. But there was a, a William Rolleston. He visited the islands during this period, and he described the conditions on the Chathams in this, basically this uh, Maori prisoner of war camp is utterly scandalous. Anyway, soon after their exile to um, the Chathams, our, or the Whorikari, as the Maoris called it, of course, Takuti began spitting blood and seemed to be in an advanced stage of tuberculosis. This was the scourge of early Maori at the time and permission was obtained from Captain Thomas to build to Korti a separate forry in the bush and it was a Maori custom to do this of course if someone was about to die and uh, an old woman who um, lived amongst them she was uh, ordered to attend the dying man. No one expected him to live very long. Now, Takuti achieved what was considered several miracles in his life. Now, this is a um, sort of oral history, if you like, but the first one came in the eyes of his fellow prisoners when he recovered. He rose from the deathbed and he walked out to join the others while his foray reportedly burst into flames. Now, of course, why, why he wouldn't have thrown a match to it on his way out, who knows? But on the basis of this, he founded a new religion known as the Ringatu Church on the Chathams. And this, of course, would spread. And he told his amazed people of the visions that had led to his recovery. And for the moment, they accepted every word. He was suddenly their spiritual leader. And whatever the source of the vision, you know, sick bed hallucinations or, or delirium or, or genuine visitations, who know? But All it, made it up. Yeah, of course. His timing, though, was impeccable. Many important rebel chiefs, so they'd all been rehabilitated um, to the mainland, interestingly, and those left behind were generally the problem prisoners, well, in Pākehā eyes anyway. In many cases, the men left 
on the island had been disowned even by their own tribes as, as the sort of land wars were ending. But the people left behind were just the kind of people likely to be obsessed with Takoti and his new belief, which promised salvation for the Maori cause. And night and morning, led by Takoti, they intoned their chants of prayer that he now came up with. And the services became very popular and aroused intense feelings in the prisoner. It was almost like a born-again feeling. Right. Yeah, this frequently happens with those that are under a lot of social stress or feeling ideas of being dispossessed or oppressed and somehow the, the attachment to the old testament with the stories of escape from slavery and that sort of thing the hebrews yeah exactly rastafarians do that a lot too yeah they do well of course that's well known amongst maori people too many of them adhere to that and it just fits into their regime perfectly but um captain thomas the uh, commandant if you like of the chathams he he became very very concerned at what was happening and he made a move to imprison Takoti to calm the others, but uh, he always sort of expressed his regret, and Takoti was always freed without any warnings. It was quite interesting. He must have gone away and sort of thought about it. Now, events began taking a desperate turn for the Maori outcasts on the Chathams because the Poverty Bay Group and other rebels were issued with 100 bushels of wheat and told that after their first harvest, all rations would cease altogether. They had to look after their own food supply. Now, they inferred that their exile now was going to be indefinite, perhaps forever, because they thought they were going to go back. They were all going to be repatriated as as they served their indefinite sentences. But no, they were just going to get these last 100 bushels of wheat and that was going to be it. They could look after themselves. And a sense of real despair settled on those remaining on the island. Now, the unofficial policy told to them in the early imprisonment was that they would be returned home after just two years. Now, the principal chiefs had been relocated back and it left a sort of leaderless group of rebels who were entirely now under the influence of Takoti. And with fewer prisoners to watch, the guard had been reduced to only 15 men under an NCO and the control had been totally relaxed. It was a bit like a Stockholm syndrome, if you like. Everyone sort of became a bit friendly. Right, and he must have been a charismatic character as well to become the sort of visionary prophet, religious leader, ringer to. He started to evolve more rituals too, and it became a... That always helps. Oh, it does, a very sort of intricate new religion. And then suddenly he pronounced that two ships would anchor soon in Waitangi Bay, and one would be their ark to deliver the prisoners from exile. So now everyone totally believed him that they were now going to be saved. All right, Takuti, his life and times, our outsider today. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. For details, visit dockedge.nz. Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh, the famous story of Takuti.
he's in exile on the Chatham Islands. He says he's been framed. He was fighting against the Hao Hao and then thought to be spying for them. And on this on Chatham Island, he apparently became very sick, healed himself with the help of divine intervention. He had visions, is now evoking the supernatural. It's a new religion, the Ringatu religion, and he is making uh, prophetic predictions. He is making prophesying stuff. Okay, take it from here. He said a couple of ships would arrive. Um, I reckon that's probably a, a, a 99% surety that it would, but it'd look impressive if they, when they came over the horizon to some. Yeah, well, his prediction was that two ships would anchor in Waitangi Bay. In a harbour? In the sea? Yeah. What were the chances? And one would be their ark to deliver the prisoners from exile. Now, right on cue, Graham, within two days, the catch Florence arrived. This was on the 30th of June, 1868, which was followed by the schooner Rifleman three days later. Now, there were no doubters now left amongst the prisoners, and there was no challenge to to Corti's leadership amongst them. Now, the day after the arrival of the second ship, Rifleman, the prisoners held a morning service. Now, this was Saturday, the 4th of July, 1868. At the end of devotions, to Corti pointed to the rain pouring down and told his followers that it had been sent as a sign that the time for their deliverance had arrived. And he said... The day will be ours, the soldiers overcome and the ship captured. It turned into one of these miserable Chatham's days, overcast, uh, mist, rain, cold, middle of winter, and all the unsuspecting guards kept indoors while the prisoners made their plan of escape. And with freedom to come and go as they wished, they were basically able to put any plan they came up with into effect. Now... At 1pm, the government whaleboat was sent out to the riflemen to bring ashore a plough, a metal plough for Captain Thomas. Now, Sergeant Elliot was in charge of the Maori crew who rowed out into the murky mist of the bay, but the Kurti stayed ashore. Now, by 2pm, most of the prisoners had gathered in the redoubt's cookhouse telling the guards that Sergeant Elliot had ordered them to carry bags of flour. This was just taken by the soldiers as uh, a routine thing. They said, go ahead. Now, 45 minutes later, they made their move. They trapped the guards in the barrack room, overpowered them and tied them all up. Then they broke open the magazine. They rolled out all the ammunition, rifles and bayonets. And the party led by Karanama Rangi, uh, Rangi was armed with swords and revolvers and they climbed into the whaleboat which was now ashore and they rowed out to the riflemen. They took the schooner without any resistance and until that point the prisoners seized control without any bloodshed but when Constable Hartnell insulted the wife of Tamihana Tiki Tiki, he was shot dead. And Takorti ordered his followers to avoid killing any more white people while they plundered the settlement of anything that would be useful. 
Now, using the ship's um, boat and the whale boat, they ferried the rest of the prisoners out to the riflemen. They were This they loaded with all the plunder they could get. They had 48 firearms, 5,000 rounds of ammunition. They had swords, bayonets, axes. And before leaving, Tukorti sent a boarding party to the Florence, which was anchored nearby. Now, they had been totally unaware of what was going on because of the misty conditions. And the people on the Florence? Yeah, totally unaware. Now, she was captured and towed alongside the rifleman where she was plundered, and then she was set on fire and cast adrift. What about the people on board? Well, they were taken ashore, actually, and uh, eventually the the fire died out, interestingly, and the catch drifted ashore, so it wasn't um, scuttled as such. But the riflemen, you see, had arrived in Chathams with um, provisions for the settlement, so the escapees, now there were 163 men, 64 women and 71 children and six Pākehā crew, uh, they had plenty of food to sail away in their bid for freedom. The, the uh, Pākehā crew were taken as prisoners, basically. That's a quite a community, isn't it? Oh, it is, and a lot of planning and, uh, you know, to, to just pull off in one go like that. It, it, he's, he's about to raise his staff into the air and part the waters, isn't he? He is, basically. But the Courtney was still fearful as they weighed anchor to go back to uh, New Zealand that a government steamer that was possibly due soon would discover them. And he became more uneasy over the next three days as they battled headwinds, which kept the schooner pinned within sight of Forikari, which is the Chathams, you see. They could hardly get out of the place. It became an anxious time for the rebels and Te ordered that all greenstone ornaments be cast overboard to appease Tangaroa, the Maori god of the sea. So this was his way, and but this one didn't work, and the wind and the sea continued to rise and, and forced them back towards Waitangi Bay. Now, finally, Te announced to his followers that the god is angry. There is amongst us one who is unfaithful, he went now into a deep trance and he named the sinner as his uncle, Forihi Patini, who had scoffed at his nephew's mystical powers once or twice. Now, he was thrown over the stern. No, oh, just into mm. the sea, dead. Yeah, just like Drowned. that. Drowned, bad luck. Yeah. Now, later, witnesses to the event, now, of course, how these stories uh, raise up, but witnesses to the event claim that the enormous sea promptly subsided and the wind swung to a favourable easterly to take them briskly back to New Zealand. The... Well, we've got Jonah. Book <laughs> yeah. of Jonah in here as well. Exactly. Throw him overboard. Yeah, throw him overboard like a sacrifice, if you'd like. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. Now... The riflemen uh, flew now towards the northeast, towards Poverty Bay. They relied on the um, ship's crew a bit for navigation. And interesting, the ship's mate tried to deceive the escapees by gradually altering course just half a degree every sort of few hours so that they were end up bound for Wellington, where they may be intercepted and Decorti could be caught. But Decorti had had a long experience of sailing ships and he saw through the deception and took the helm himself, actually. I'm not sure what uh, what the um, ship's mate, whether there was any punishment for him or whether he was just tied up. Anyway, 
Uh, on the fifth day after the rebellion, they made good time towards the northeast with a, a fair sea and wind. And the next morning, Poverty Bay uh, appeared on the horizon and they anchored off Furi on a cove. Now, this is 25 kilometres south of present-day Gisborne. Now, this was the 10th of July, 1868, and they'd been free now for about six or seven days. Now, during the rest of the day, they unloaded the schooner before farewelling the mate and his five crew. They released them, and they weighed down with arms, goods, and children, and the escapers pushed inland, seeking the safety of the rugged interior. All right. The story of Takoti this week exiled, held prisoner on the Chatham Islands. He started a new religion there and he's escaped. Uh, quite an amazing escape. And they've made it back to New Zealand. What happens now and what of the rest of his life? Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. The Weekend Variety Wireless with Dock Edge Festival. New Zealand's premier documentary film festival. The story of one of the more famous names in New Zealand history, Tukorti. Uh The things that he got up to, exiled in... Exiled, held prisoner on Chatham Island. He's made his escape and he's carrying with him a new religion. He's the prophet, uh, the Ringatu religion. All right, what from here? He's made it back to New Zealand. Yeah, and he's unloaded everything, including quite a sizable cachet of arms and uh, ammunition uh, and uh, goods, all sorts of things. They basically plundered the entire garrison and settlement of Waitangi and brought it back to Poverty Bay. Now, of course, if Takorti had been left alone after his escape from the Chatham, much of the subsequent trouble would have been avoided, but, of course, that wasn't possible. New Zealand was in a state of civil war, and the mutiny on the Chathams, the commandeering of the riflemen and the sacking of a station near Young Nick's Head, which Takorti was involved in, it just caused an uproar in New Zealand like the militants were getting away with it the British were a laughing stock for this and it called for military action now he became very evasive because for the next four years Takorti and his followers soaked the central North Island in bloodshed basically both European and Maori as they pursued their aim of pushing the Pakeha into the sea that was his Aim. He wanted the Pakeha to be driven out of New Zealand. And it would be fair to say that most Māori at this time had resigned themselves to the military power of the white conquerors, but not so to Korti. He played a grim game of hide-and-seek with the military and in all the accessible sort of Gisborne backcountry, he swept down from time to time on isolated settlements and killing, looting and raping too. And initially his, his success did attract many Māori dissidents to his cause, but, you know, soon the military detachment placed at strategic points. They wore Takoti and his rebels down, and the defeats became more and more common, and his band just sort of withered away, if you like. And in 1872, Takoti sought refuge with King Tefio in the King Country. Now, for six years, nothing was heard of the arch-rebel. 
Then he attended a meeting between the government and Tefeo in uh, 1878, but he still had a price on his head. It was equivalent to £10,000, which proved a terrible embarrassment to the peace negotiations which were being conducted between King Tefeo and the government. Now, Dakuti, he was eventually, you know, a bit like the, the greater you get, you can't be punished almost. He was granted a pardon in 1883, and he lived for another 10 years on his land at Afia Harbour. It's an incredible story, really, but he never stopped preaching the Rangatū religion. Now, his relationship with um, King Tefao, it actually deteriorated in 1891. He was kind of like a nuisance, and he again um, rejected the King movement, and he turned his back on the prophet there, and he considered the Kota Hitanga movement to be futile. He, he taught instead to hold to the way of the faith, and he sought from the government another place for himself and his followers, and land was actually purchased for him at Orakau in 1884. It turned out to be an entirely swamp country. And finally, in 1891, he was given these 600 acres at Wainui on the Ohiwa Harbour. Now, in February 1893, he travelled to the new settlement. On, on the last journey, he suffered the accident which would, as he predicted, cause his death. And this was on the 28th of February 1893. His, uh, he was in a spring cart in whose shade he had been resting. And it, the cart slipped on the mud and it fell on him. And injured, he continued his, um, the journey through to um, Hokianga Island in, in Ahiwa Harbour, which had a very strong Ringatu community. And, and uh, he even travelled on to Ruatoki on the 29th of March, where the um, Tuhoe chiefs were gathered to, to block the survey of their land. But he, he died on the 17th of April at Tikaraka on the shore of the harbour. Now... No one knows even today really, or if those of you Maori people would know, but it's not known where he's buried. He was first interred at Maramahi, which is Waiatahi, but his body was removed and hidden by his followers. And in his death, he just remained ever since a sort of this crazy enigmatic figure, if you like, in written accounts and in Pākehā memories. He appears as a sort of a violent rebel and a, and a religious fanatic but two drawings of him made in um, I think there's one in 1887 it's that I've actually sent it to you to put on the website it showed a bearded firm face sort of so in some ways a sort of kindly man his left ear had been pierced for an earring and all that unjust punishment imprisonment that he had in the bitter pursuit and the last 20 years of his life were all dedicated in some ways though to peace you know the last few years he became very peace-like i suppose a bit like to too you know? mm, yeah you know? yeah he tried to get some help with the people in the uruwera tuhoi anyway and and the king movement when he was marauding around um they all rejected him oh absolutely yeah true his attempts were, in the end, failed, of course, but he had a huge influence on a lot of people for a long time. Mm, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, a great man. And it's these details of his life and his history, I think, that make these stories. Today, we always have things to summarise, too many bullet points, you know, about things. It's the fullness of these stories that really increase our understanding, Mm. you know. Yeah, a fascinating life, an alpha male, there's no doubt about it. Oh, of course. You know, a big part in New Zealand's history. Uh, it would have been frightening, though, to have him marauding around. And I don't care if you're Maori or Pakeha, because you know he engaged in war with with everybody. Oh, he did. There was no doubt about that. And to be a settler in uh, the East Cape, there, it would have always been on your mind. Yeah. If you'd heard of a uh, you know a homestead that had been attacked nearby or anything, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. That pardon. They saw it fit and seemed like the right idea uh, because uh, nothing radical happened uh, surrounding him or particularly malicious after that. But, yeah, really, really interesting character. Jared, thank you very, very much. Oh, good one, Graham. Thank you for letting me tell it. Thank you all very much for listening. And a reminder, if you like the outsider sort of thing, there's an archive with tons and tons and tons of Jared Hindmarsh's tales there, as well as other archives with uh, shipwreck tales, tales of the lost 50 ships that changed the course of human history, um, uh, weird museums of New Zealand, 
That was a fun series to, go, to do. You must check out the Museum of Regrets. And a special thank you if you've downloaded the podcast and you're listening to it, the show in that fashion. Another show next week, two more shows, of course, Saturday and Sunday nights uh, from 8pm. If you want an early heads up and be part of the, the uh, discussion about what goes on and just have your say about things, I almost said conversation which it would be actually applicable in this case. But anyway, go to the Facebook page and just join up, do whatever you want. Uh, and you can leave messages there for Max Cryer and me and basically just have your say about things. And it's a neat little community and you'll get an early heads up for stuff. Okay, new sport and weather coming up very shortly. Take care, have a lovely weekend, everybody, and overnight talk, 0800 844 747. That's 0800 844 747.